Good morning, Redeemer. It's good to see you guys. Uh, It's good to worship together, to sing of the beautiful name of Jesus. Um, What a joy to do that. Um, Well, this morning we're continuing our walk through Luke's gospel uh, in Luke chapter one. Uh, So you can turn there with me if you'd like. Um, 10 years ago, uh, right about 10 years ago, on, uh, on the Sunday morning that the Redeemer kids were singing their Christmas songs in front of the congregation, uh, it was a morning, you know, much like we're probably going to experience in the next month or so, where uh, children are singing and uh, Christmas decor is abounding, and uh, we're, and and that Sunday morning, uh, the kids were up to sing, uh, and it was just like you would imagine: parents in the front row, everybody's got their phones out, taking pictures, taking uh, taking actually in two thousand ten years ago, so maybe more cameras than phones, but now it would be all phones. Um, but they were uh, paying attention as the kids sang the Christmas class. Classic, come on, ring those bells, light the Christmas tree. Jesus is the king, born for you and me. And of course, uh, each kid had their own set of jingle bells uh, that they shook while they, while they sang. And they actually also had little, uh, they had little felt cut out Christmas trees that, they had, that had been made for them to all wear. Uh, it, was, it was great, uh, fantastic. We don't have those for everybody this morning, sorry. Um, but uh, there's always one kid when kids get up to sing or more uh, who's just, they really would rather not be up there. Uh, and they're, they're just, this isn't really their scene. Um, and, and, but mom and dad are hopeful. Maybe this is the year where my kid will begin to sing along and participate. Um, and it, it doesn't always go that way. Well, that Sunday morning, my, uh, my boys were the only of, ones of my kiddos that were old enough to be a part uh, of that singing at the time. They were five and three at the time. Um, and they had a friend that was uh, singing with them that morning uh, that was just like that. They were just not interested in being a part. And, uh, and they... As as the singing was going on, uh, it was a you know a good a good parent moment. My son Judah, who was the oldest, he uh, five years old, he reached down and he saw my their friend didn't have his bells. His bells were on the ground. He was not participating. So he reached down, tried to hand his, their friend uh, the bells, and he was like, "Nope, not interested in the bells. I'm just going to be sullen right here. I'm not going to participate." And so as they just kept singing, and he put the bells back down. Um, and then it was just about that time uh, that uh, the younger of my two sons, uh, three-year-old, nearly four-year-old Canaan, saw what was happening and he immediately knew, uh, sorry, you're getting the story about you here in the front row. Uh, he immediately knew what needed to happen. Uh, he knew, uh, he, he slowly disappeared from sight behind the people and he reached down around his friend and grabbed the bells and then he reemerged from in, in his spot and there he was, double-fisted bells, come on, ring those bells. He was, and his, he had been kind of into it, but when he had two sets of bells, I mean, it was just like, yeah. Um, and uh, it, was, it was a classic Christmas moment. Uh, everybody sing, Jesus, we remember it's your birthday. If you know that great classic uh, Christmas song. I, I don't know if it's classic or not, but I know it. Uh, some people have a harder time singing along than others. Some people have a hard time finding their song. Uh, some find it's hard to sing because it's hard to find joy to sing. Some are shy. Uh, singing is a funny thing. And in cultures throughout history, uh, including ours, singing used to be a more universal form of expression. 
but it's become a little bit of a lost communal experience. People used to gather in homes around pianos uh, to raise their voices together. Uh, but now outside of concerts and karaoke, uh, and maybe, maybe jamming out to the radio in your car, uh, church is one of the few remaining places where we still gather and sing together. Um, but as you read in the Bible, you can't help but notice there's songs everywhere. There's people singing everywhere, songs of celebration and thanksgiving, songs of worship, even songs of lament. And on occasion, a person who's walking through a difficult season, a difficult period of time, either, either because of their deliverance, because of God's provision, or to express their sorrow, the person will pour out a song. And we see it in the Psalms of David and of others. We see it in Lamentations and in the Prophets. Uh, we even see it in Exodus, Moses and Miriam. But very few places do we see it as prominently as we see it right here in the first three chapters of Luke, which is why Luke is sometimes referred to as the singing gospel. We'll see this today with Mary. We'll see it in a couple weeks with Zechariah. And really, who could blame them? Who could blame them for singing? God had broken into the pain of humanity. And a simple word of thanksgiving wouldn't cut it. Uh, they needed to sing of what he'd done. There's no ignoring when someone starts singing a song, is there? Like you, you can't, like if somebody just says a few words of thanks, but if they write you a song, that's something. You gotta stop and you gotta hear it. And sometimes uh, it's the songs of others that give word and give voice to our own emotions. I'm so thankful for some of the great songwriters that are out there uh, that give word to our thoughts and feelings. Um, but there are a few songs like today's passage Mary's Magnificat, that's the Latin word for the first word of this, uh, in the Latin translation of the scriptures, that's the first word of this sentence, the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord. And people have sung and set these words to music just so many times throughout the centuries, uh, over and over again, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's been sung by uh, children's choruses and by famous gospel choirs. It's been sung in quiet monastery rooms and in resonant cathedrals with orchestral accompaniment. Uh, and it's been sung with, by, with, through many tears by newly pregnant mothers. And it's been sung by worshiping saints on Christmas Eve. This is one that the Christian community has often sung. And oh, what a gospel song it is. And as we look at Mary's heart this morning, as we peer into her heart as she sings, we're going to be invited to sing along. Mary's song is not a solo. Uh, it is the song of the redeemed, and we're invited to sing. So if we're not going to sing during the sermon, so you can relax. We're not going to, uh, it's okay. If you want to, uh, we'll maybe still wait. Um, <laughs> but if you're, if you're a hesitant singer, or if you can't think of much reason to sing, as we look at Mary's song today, I want us to see four things that led Mary to rejoice in God. And by God's grace, I want us to see four reasons that you and I will rejoice too, those same four reasons. And they're, they're these. Number one, that we have help to sing. Number two, he looked at us. Number three, we look to him. And lastly, his invitation. Let me pray for us. Father, would, would you pour out your mercy on us? You are, you are bountiful in the way that you deal with us, the way that you give yourself to us, the way that you bless us, the way that you meet us when we seek you, the way that you hear us when we, when we ask. 
And Father, would you, would you do that again today? By your spirit, would you speak to us? Would you meet us in your word? Would we not hear my words, Father, but would we hear the words of, of, of your scriptures from your spirit? And God, would you draw us in to be those who worship and praise the mercy of God? God, we need your spirit to, to do that in us. So would, would you, by your spirit, would you draw us to Jesus? And we ask all this in Christ's name, amen. So number one, uh, we have help to sing. So to set the context, here we are. We're eight verses, uh, which is possible, possibly a couple of weeks in real time after Mary's encounter uh, with an angel. Uh, and if you remember the scene, Gabriel has shown up on the scene and told Mary uh, what's about to happen. Uh, and if you remember, how did Mary respond? Uh, what did we hear from Mary? Just, I mean, just a couple weeks ago, what did we hear? Verse 29, this is earlier in Luke 1. In, in verse 29, it says, she was deeply troubled, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. In verse 34, she said, how can this be? She's just apoplectic. How is this possible? Uh, verse 38, finally, she says, she, you can see that she's, she's resigned to the Lord's plan. There's humble submission. I'm the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. And, and those words, those responses for Mary seem anything, anything but a worship service. Um, I think it's safe to say Mary's initial response to this news is uh, confusion, maybe some fear, likely overwhelmed by the path that lies ahead, um, but resigned, humbly submitted to the Lord. Okay, Lord, I trust you. Do, do what you'll do. And, and then eight verses later, we, we get one of the most beautiful expressions of rejoicing and worship in the scriptures. So, so what happened in those eight verses? Well, the angel had told her, if you remember, to go to see her relative, Elizabeth. So she goes on a road trip to see Elizabeth. We don't know exactly what kind of trip this was, but likely uh, at least a couple of days away. And then Luke tells us that at the end of this passage, or at the end of this passage, Luke is gonna tell us that she was there for up to three months or three months uh, before she returned home. And Luke, Luke is gonna tell us how Elizabeth affirmed Mary, that she wasn't neutral toward Mary. She wasn't low key. No, it was, it was an explosive response from Elizabeth. It was laughter. Uh, a, a tear fest, a laughter fest. And she exclaimed to uh, the younger Mary, you're blessed. Your child will be a blessing. She's encouraging her. Oh, how the Lord has, has been merciful to me that you would even come here. She's reassuring her. Oh, what a blessing to see your faith. Mary, look at how God has blessed us. Elizabeth is worshiping and she is, she is praising God for what he has done for her and for Mary. And I, and I don't know what Elizabeth, what all Elizabeth told her other than what we see here. Um, she was there for three months. But Elizabeth's worship was contagious. Uh, there are echoes in Mary's song of Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter two, when God had granted Hannah a child in her barrenness. So you think, I, I would think for Elizabeth, that had been a sweet, a sweet place of meditation she had, she had remembered what God had done for Hannah and then and saw echoes of how God had given her a child. And so Mary's song now sounds a lot like the beginning of Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving. Um, and I, that had to have come from Elizabeth, from her encouragement. Uh, and, and we don't know exactly when Mary wrote this song of praise, 
Um, but somewhere along the line in these three months, after time with the older, wiser Elizabeth, after seeing Elizabeth's faith and joy and probably recalling and meditating on what happened with Hannah and her prayer in the scriptures, the posture of Mary's heart had changed. There was something different. The truth of God had worked its way into her soul, giving language to her joy. This, this, this wasn't a recitation for Mary here of just truths about God. No, this, is, this wasn't just God is powerful, God is mighty. Let me tell you about uh, these, this list of things. No, this is a song. What had been trepidation, maybe even fear, had become a song of renewed belief, a song of rejoicing, a song of humble worship. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Uh, and, and isn't it kind of like this sometimes for us? That when we walk through seasons of God's refining, when we walk through uh, difficult paths, when God's working uh, in our lives and through our trials, through painful seasons, we find ourselves sometimes overwhelmed, troubled, not knowing what will come, or even if we're up to the task. And then in those moments, we need another child of God, right? We need some, something more powerful than our own thoughts. We need someone to look us in the eye and to remind us, God is with us. God's with you. You are blessed. Do you see the evidence of his grace in your life? Oh, that you would see it and believe. It's like when we tell our kids that they're growing taller and they don't believe us. And so what do we do? Uh, we put a mark on the wall. And then later when they're like, I don't, I'm not getting any taller, we put them next to the mark, right? So they can see it. There it is. God's at work. We need to, we need to be reminded. I've seen so many in our church do this so well. Um, I'm so thankful for our, our student leaders, for Lee and for John, who speak truth and reminders of God's grace to the students. Uh, I've watched Lee over the last year be such a voice of encouragement in the lives of, of students, telling them, here, I see what God's doing in you. I look at how he's, he's blessed you. Don't miss it. We need people to, to tell us that. I know so many others in our church, Steve Egloff and Austin Powers, Katie Harrison. You guys do this so faithfully. You encourage, you speak the truth of God. You speak evidences of grace that you've seen in people's lives. Nancy Miller, Matt Sanders, you guys doing this for our next generation of leaders, for others in the church so faithfully. Even lately, my wife and I have talked about how we've heard our daughter coming home from her elementary class singing scripture. Uh, and so faithfully, I know Andrew Eads has been setting songs to scripture to songs and they're learning God's word. They're hiding it in their heart. Why? Because uh, people are so faithfully uh, ministering uh, the grace of God to them. And we have so many who faithfully do that both for our children, but also for us who speak the words of grace to each other. In, in the world that we live, we, we will not often be, uh, uh, have godliness affirmed in us. The world will, will, will not affirm godliness in you. It will, it will condemn, actually, uh, you waiting on the Lord. It will explain away uh, the blessing of God in your life. Oh, but Christians speak truth. Christians speak words of truth and encouragement to one another. The Lord is with you, even to the end of the age. Christians say to one another, this is a light affliction, remember. But the Lord has not left you. He's not left you as an orphan. You're a child, his child. His spirit is with you. He's in you. 
Here's what his word says. Trust him. He's working in you. He loves you. He's so good. You're blessed, like Elizabeth told Mary. Oh, may we speak those sorts of words of life to one another, words of encouragement. When you see God's grace in someone, say it. Say it. Remind them how God is working in them. Don't just think it. Say it. We need help. We need help that we might rejoice in God, help to remember his many blessings. And when we speak words of truth and blessing to one another, the fear, the apprehension, the anxieties that we feel, they begin to be replaced by belief and worship and remembrance of God's grace with us. A new song of faith. Like Mary in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. I love some, many of the, the older translations that say that you had that language that from, from the Latin translation, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. This is Mary saying, I'm, I'm really happy. I'm really happy now in him, in my soul, in my spirit, at the core of who I am. I, I'm, I've got joy in him. I'm rejoicing in him. And when life is hard and when you rejoice, that magnifies Jesus. That makes a lot of him because it makes him look so much better than the trial. And, this, and likewise, if you, if you rejoice in, in Jesus when, when things are good, more so than rejoicing in the thing that is good at the time, that makes Jesus look great. He's better than whatever good thing you have. That magnifies him. So what is it about God that causes us to rejoice? Look at number two. He looked at us. In verse 47, uh, she says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. You remember uh, that look? You know, the one from your parents? You know the look, the stern look. Kids, I know you know it. Many parents in the room, certainly you've given it. You probably remember it from your own parents. Um, <laughs> And, and sometimes, every, my, my kids know the look. <clears throat> I, I haven't asked them to do it back to me or anything. Um, but sometimes I'll look at one of my kids with, with, uh, with that look and, and I'll say in a somewhat stern way, Annie. And I'll just pause for just a second because it's fun. <laughs> um, I'll pause for just a second and say, I love you. There's a certain way. I mean, I can, it's, it, the same thing happens with, with, with our dog in our house. Uh, we can say, there's a certain way I can say the dog's name and the dog just goes, right? You know, because he knows. Like he knows that's a, that's, a, that's a look, that's a voice of condemnation, of anger, not of happiness. Um, and I think a lot of us live that way. We live with a low heat, simmering feeling of God's stern frustration with us. God must be so disappointed in me. I must be such a letdown. If I could just be, be better, maybe read my Bible more consistently, maybe go uh, to my small group every week, go to the gym more often, serve my neighbors better, share the gospel more faithfully. It's like, it's like we feel as though we're, in a, we're just in this default state of, of karma, that if I can do better today, God will be impressed. He will love me. He will look at me with a smile. But if I let him down again, it's, it's that look of disappointment, the face of divine buyer's remorse. Christian, believe this today. You may not purchase the loving gaze of God. 
It's not for sale. There's nothing that will impress your father, the most high God. What, what, who could rightly stand before him anyway? There is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3. Psalm 130 says, Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? Mary is, is not impressed with herself here. She knows the miracle that has, has happened. She doesn't say here, hail me, full of grace. No, she, she sings, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. God looks at her. Through, though, though her station in life was nothing, he saw her. And he looked not, not with that stern look, not with the angry look, but with favor. God's kindness toward you isn't because you're standing at the front of the line. It isn't because you've risen to the top of the heap. He isn't a chain of command sort of God talking and looking only to the powerful, only to the most spiritual, only to the leaders, only to the pastors. No, he looks through the heap. So if you feel invisible to God, that you can rejoice because he sees you. He knows you. He doesn't have to strain his eyes to see you. He doesn't have to put on his glasses to find you. His eyes are open to the lowly. And he isn't just looking at you like the police officer does when he has his radar gun pointed at you. Now the father looks at you because of Jesus and says, I love you. My child, I love you. My favor is on you. Blessed are you. And that's what it is for the poor in spirit. His grace on you, his favor on you. I see you in your humble condition. And his favor is his mercy. It is so good. And he says, you're mine. I'll, I'll never lose one of my own, he says. And then number three, we, we look to him. Look at the end, as Mary says at the end of verse 48. She sings, surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Well, that doesn't sound like what we were talking about, does it? All generations will call me blessed. So I thought that was supposed to, this was supposed to be about God. Well, why, why would they call Mary blessed? Well, look what she says in verse 49. Because the mighty one has done great things for me. And his name, his name is holy. Some faith traditions have venerated Mary because of these lines of scripture. And certainly she plays a key role in the scriptures. And, and, and it's true, generations have called her blessed. But have you ever answered the question or asked the question, how are you? And heard the response or given the response, I'm blessed. Of course you have, especially in Texas. I feel like that's, that's a more common greeting in Texas or a common response. I'm blessed, of course. But so to the person asking the question, uh, when, when they asked you that and you said, I'm blessed, did they respond back to you and go, no, 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 no. Only God is blessed. No, of course not. Because what were you saying when you say that you were blessed? You were saying that God has been good to me. I don't deserve what I have. He has been so good. This is the language that's used by followers of Jesus throughout the Bible. The Lord's people have said things like, uh, or it's been said of them, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, Jeremiah 17. Blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven, Psalm 32. Blessed, blessed are the peacemakers, Matthew 5. Blessed are those who believe without seeing, John 20. Blessed are you when they hate you, Luke 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew 5. 
There, there isn't even a hint in this, in this uh, text today in Luke. There's not even a hint here of the sort of worship of Mary that some have resorted to over the centuries. No, that's, that's heresy. It's idolatry. It isn't Christianity to worship Mary. Why? Because Mary herself knew. She knew that every gift that she had came from the mighty hand of God. And she was right. She got it right. She exalted his might. His name is holy, she sings. I am blessed because God has done great things for me. And from generation to generation, she's gonna say, many others will know this blessing of God's mercy. God looks on us. He looked on Mary. He looks on us with favor. He pours out his kindness and his blessing on us. And then, like Mary, we look on God. And we praise his might and his mercy. The blessing of God's mercy that Mary knew is yours through Jesus. So just like Mary, we can say, oh, the mighty one has done great things for me. I think in maybe, maybe in churches like ours, I feel like we can look at God a lot. It's probably not just churches like ours. I think this happens a lot. We can look at God, but in the same way that a student looks at a textbook, and so, so we look at him and, and we can get to a point that we're really good at looking at God. Uh, but the longer that, I, that I've walked with God and the longer that I, I've looked and studied him in the scriptures, I've realized it's a very different thing uh, to look at God than it is to look to God and to look to his strength and to his mercy. To simply look at him, to grow an understanding of him uh, can lead, I think the, the scriptures tell us, can lead to being puffed up being conceited, being prideful. Even the demons believe the reality of God and they shudder. But to know God and then to know how truly small I am before him, how truly lowly I am, means I must look to him for help, to his strength, because I have none of my own. To truly know that he has done mighty things for you can never lead to conceit. Knowing the strength of God can never lead to pride in self. But I wonder how many of us want to take the path of experiencing those lofty heights of the blessings of God without seeing that actually what we need is his mighty right hand. That is his blessing to us. That we need him to lift us up from the pit. There's only one height, or there's only one path to seeing those heights and experiencing those heights with God. And ironically, it's the path of lowliness. I love this beautiful prayer from uh, the Valley of Vision. That's a book sometimes we use of, of Puritan prayers. Sometimes we'll use those in our confession uh, prayers. And one of, the, one of the prayers in that book is actually, the, it's actually the, the namesake of the book. It's a prayer called the Valley of Vision. <clears throat> and I love these words, uh, this, this prayer that says, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by the mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. 
See, to understand the beauty of the incredible might of God, we must first see how weak uh, and, and incapable we are. Only then can we look to God as our savior, as our help. Maybe you have a, a theology of the mountain, but you've never stood jaw-dropped beneath its shadow. Maybe you've talked about God, studied his perfect attributes, created a good catalog of understanding of God, and yet without crying out to him, without looking to that perfect son of God that you've learned about, and knowing that, you, God, you need to lift me up. Who am I before you? Would you, with your mighty right hand, show me your mercy and raise me up? May we look to the strength and might of our God, the one who is mighty to save and whose mercy extends to those who fear him. Mary, Mary was leveled by this reality. She was leveled by the might of God. Oh, what a powerful God. He did great things for her. This girl in the middle of nowhere, and he's done great things for us. Those of us in the middle of nowhere in Tomball. He's done great things for us. Number four, we see his invitation. Look at verse 50. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He's done a mighty deed with his arm. Oh, what mercy. And I, th I think some, some have said or would say that this next section, uh, Mary is now looking back and praising God for what he's done in the past for Israel. Uh, she'll say uh, things like he, he has scattered the proud and he has toppled the mighty. Uh, but I don't think this is Mary uh, looking backwards so much uh, because her, her song really sounds, it sounds a lot like the writing of the prophets. She's speaking, yes, of what God has done, but really with the focus on what he is doing now and how he is doing those things right now and, and the trajectory of what he's doing now and how it will lead to these things going forward. This is, it's her saying, this is the kind of God he is. This is what he's doing for his people. So what is he like? What is he doing? She's gonna tell us. He's, and, and I think what she's gonna lay out is that he's reversing every human sense of worth, every human idea of glory in the world, the blessing is not for the proud, for the mighty, for the rich. And if you find yourselves finding your worth in those things, I think Mary's gonna tell us this morning, look out. She's writing about uh, us. She's singing about how he is against those things, but rather that he's extending his position to those, his, his position, his might, his riches to those who are humble to those who see that they are really weak, to those who understand that they're actually poor. But before he extends those invitations, uh, let's look at those that he opposes. These are the ones you don't wanna be a part of. You don't wanna be a part of who he opposes. He opposes, number one, the proud. Verse 51, he has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. It's amazing, because of the thoughts of their hearts. Uh, this is this, the thoughts of our hearts. That's where the filter comes off, right? The kind of things you only say at home to your spouse, the kind of stuff that you only think in your heart when you, when you think things like, you know what, I'm, I'm really better than them. These are the, she's talking about the hearts of people. That if we could see internal thoughts uh, that we might see within the hearts of men and women, little altars of worship and admiration of self. 
If only everyone was more like me, then God might be impressed with them. No, God is not impressed. And, and with his uh, tiny, this tiny little heartbeat that's beating in Mary's womb, he's about to scatter self-worship. Only he will be worthy. Only he is all-knowing. Only he is the one who is deserving of that position. And then number two, he is opposing the mighty. Verse 52, he has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. So all those who are kings on earth, rulers, leaders, power grabbers, those who set up their little kingdoms here on earth, those who demand loyalty and service, who refuse to serve others, maybe even drill it down even further, those who refuse to serve their family members, those who are too mighty to stack chairs, who can't be bothered to help their neighbor, those who only want to be served. They only want to receive service. This opposes the true mighty one, he's saying. And God is, is going to topple that sort of might, toppling kings of the earth. And Mary rejoices that, that, that these little kingly thrones, actual kingly thrones, that when the, when the might of this newborn incarnate king is on the scene, they're gonna be like little pop stick, popsicle stick palaces that are just destroyed before him. I mean, they're just gonna be wiped out by his might. And then he opposes, thirdly, the rich. Verse 53, he has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. The rich away empty. Oh, the wealthy. Now, I, don't, I don't, this is, we, we have to be clear. This isn't talking, we're not trying to delineate, well, this is where you cross over into wealthy. No, we're, we're seeing spiritual realities of those who, who find their worth in wealth, those who, who, whose God is money, but he is opposing those who have feasted, those who have sat at the richest banquets, who have enjoyed the gold, the gold plates, who have dined on the choicest meals, had the freshest bread, gone to the Brazilian steakhouse, uh, who've never known what it really feels like to be hungry. Belly's always full, wallet's always full with money for the next meal. I love Brazilian steakhouses, no offense. Oh, but his invitation is wide. Our merciful Lord is calling out not to the rich, but to the poor. Not to the full, but to the starving. He's throwing a banquet for the lowliest of the low, for the ones who, who've never known what it is to be satisfied any other way. And to the rich, to the full, they're going to be turned away. Come, he says, Jesus will say, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isaiah chapter 55, the Lord says through Isaiah, come everyone who is thirsty, come to the water and you without silver, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. The only ticket to the feast of Jesus is hunger. 
and thirst. The only prerequisite for coming is to want to come. Later in Luke 14, Jesus is gonna tell a parable of a great banquet. And I think this is the very thing he is getting at as he tells of, of those who would not hear and desire his offer and his invitation. He starts in Luke 14, verse 16. I'll read this to you. It says, then he told him, a man was going to give a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field, must go out to see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I I just got married and therefore I'm unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go into the highways and the hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I will tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. And Jesus speaks this as a parable, telling of, of those who were of his people, Israel, who would, not, who would hear but not come in and receive the gift that he had offered. But the same is true of us. The offer of the Lord to feed, uh, that he wants to feed the hungry, that he wants to console the humble, to exalt the lowly. His offer is far greater and far wider than the willingness of many to receive it. Why? Because those who are great and lofty in their own estimation don't need to be lifted up from the dirt. Those who are mighty in their own eyes, they don't need the strength that God provides. And those who have pursued a full belly and a fat bank account, they don't need food or provision. Their hunger and their thirst is muted by satisfaction in other things. Oh, Christian, do to the pains or do the pains of this life remind you that satisfaction will only really come in him. That satisfaction does not come anywhere else but through him. Don't, don't lift yourself up from the pit. Don't try to lift yourself up with, with earthly success, with power, and with might that comes from what the world can offer. Don't, don't fill yourself up. Don't feast on uh, the cheap substitutes that the world is serving up and saying, saying, enjoy this. Now, the bounty for all of those who are willing to receive it and who recognize that their true hunger hasn't been filled is, is offered to you in Christ. It's, it's freely given. Only he will satisfy Nothing else in this world will satisfy. Look to Jesus and live. Taste and see that the the Lord is indeed good. And when you've tasted and you've been satisfied by the mercy of God, you'll sing about it. You'll rejoice about it. It'll just come out of you. And it won't be a little song either. It'll, It'll be a big song. It'll be the song of your life, worshiping and rejoicing in the Lord. You won't be able to help but cry out like Mary, my soul 
magnifies you, God. You've remembered me. You knew me. You sought me. You, you paid for my sins. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And so we're going to sing together today. I don't have any bells to give you to like shake them, and, but, but we, we're going to lift our voices and we're going to remember all that he's done for us. And we're going to ask him that he would help us to be satisfied in him and him alone. Let me pray for us. Father, would you help us? Would you help us by your mercy to reject other offers? To turn away from other substitutes for might, other, other avenues of significance, other ways to find, to be lifted up in this world? And would we see ourselves as truly lowly, only needing the lifting up of our Savior? Would we see us as only needing the satisfaction of our Savior, not filling ourselves up with that which will not satisfy? And so, Lord, would you, would you help all of us here this morning to hear and receive uh, this invitation that you've given to us? to acknowledge our hunger before you, our thirst before you, our lowliness before you, and to come and to receive and to come hungry and to feast on the goodness that is our Lord and Savior, our God and our King. So we love you. Lead us in this now. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.